Hey there, this is What the Riff, a podcast that takes you back to riff and reminisce about the days of old, that old time rock and roll. We're going to share a few songs off an album of the month from the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s with some individual staff picks and a little more. You're going to hear some well-known favorites along with a few deeper cuts that may re-inspire you. If you hear something you haven't heard in a while, or if it's totally new to you, visit our website, whattheriff.com, and you can download these songs to your playlist. We hope you enjoy the riffs and are riffing about them on What the Riff, brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and also Marbury Creative Group, a brand development agency that helps companies tell it better. So for now, enjoy this episode of What the Riff? Soviet troops begin the pullout of Afghanistan after the nine-year war. The terrorist group Al-Qaeda is formed. And Yellowstone Fire starts in Yellowstone National Park. This is August of 1988, and this is What the Riff. I'm Brian. I'm Wayne. And I'm Rob. Wayne, what you got for us this week? Right now, we've got Jane's Addiction. Uh, I consider one of the godfathers of the grunge and alternative music that started in 91. Even though this is 88, that's the reason why I consider them the godfathers. They started out early on. They kind of developed from that uh, post-punk environment from the L.A. scene. And uh, they actually had a concert called Lollapalooza that they would focus on and go all throughout the United States. It was just a festival. Is that when it started? It started in 91. Uh, I actually went to it. And we'll talk about it a little bit later on some of the bands and stuff. This song is called Idiot's Rule. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. I think no matter what side of the, of the, I guess, political spectrum you're on, you pretty much consider a lot of the people who are in our ruling class, some of them are just plain idiots. I've got to tell you, Wayne, this is, this is a, a funky, rocking song. I really like this. I, I've, I've not been a big James Addiction fan. Of course, I know you've been caught stealing, but this has a great sound. I love the horns in that. Well, what's interesting about the horns is nobody in the band plays the horns. But well, they're doing a good job faking it. <laughs> Actually, they have a guest. Uh, if you've heard of a guy named Flea, he is the Flea. horn player on this one. And not wow. the bass player. From Red Hot Chili Peppers. From the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They invited him to play uh, horns on this. So wow. when you hear the horns in the background, that's Flea. Well, what's interesting, this song just started off like in the middle. It just was hitting it yeah. from the first note. I- I've got to say, Jane's Addiction kind of does hit that, uh, that angst that everybody had at that time. There's those horns, then. That's great. Is it single? You mean horn or horns? Uh? Just horn. Okay. But, uh, that, yeah, you, they, they started that angst, that grunge sound. That, that so this, this whole album is very... It's hype. It, it is It is very hmm. much in your face. Jane Says and Summertime Rolls are probably the two mellowest songs on there. Um, they did have a live album come out before this. It was locally distributed. Uh, I have that. and it, It's really a great album if you want to go get it. This was the first major album to come Wh- out. Which album was this? Nothing Shocking? Yeah, this one's Nothing Shocking. The album that came out before this, I think, was just called Jane's Addiction. And, you know, like anybody other band, that they were selling them at their venues that they were at. And they, once again, were just a traveling band in the L.A. scene. Uh, Perry Farrell was a, was a surfer, and he, he actually became a surfer because he was born in Long Island, 
moved to Hall, uh, to Miami when he was in, in, in high school. And then he said, screw it, I'm going to move to California to become a surfer. And he kind of bu- was a, pretty much a bum. And this song right here is Ocean Size. It sort of explains how he has that mentality of a surfer. He just wants to be by the ocean. And there's something about the ocean. I, I, if you go on vacation, you, people would just sit there and just want to be next to the waves. But are they permanent waves? <laughs> <laughs> I love these tender love songs. <laughs> you know, the old question of if you want to go on a vacation, you want a lake or you want an ocean, what do you right. say? I'm kind of I'm kind of a mountain guy. I am so. too. I am too. I'd be ocean as long as you could take the hurricanes away. Yeah. Well, there's that. Well, I'm pale as a ghost anyway. You don't want me to. Buy, I don't. <laughs> I don't tan. I burn. Well, this is one of the songs that Perry wrote because uh, it's about being kicked out of his apartment. He just, you know, he was really down. He hated that he was out of money. He was looking for a place to go. Um, he just. He didn't, people believed in their group, and he just, you know, he was partying and drinking like anybody else. And he felt that, you know, when he was around the ocean, everything else didn't really matter. Surfers seem to be, they get pretty serious with it. I mean, any chance they get, I know a guy that used to work for me, and he moved out there to surf. And and if he had a break, and for his for his lunch, he would take whatever time the surf was going to be good, run out and surf, and then go back to work. That's pretty hardcore. What, what always impresses me, though, is if you get down around La Jolla and San Diego and, you know, those that place, is, yeah. the water's not warm. <laughs> no, so, I, I lived in California. Yeah. I lived, uh, 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 it was a quarter for a bus ride driving down Brookhurst, basically. We, we, we were like the... Uh, little rascals. We're all grade school and middle school kids, but we're with our inner tubes and everything else. We get on the bus and head to the back, and we pay our quarter and drive out, go all the way down Brookhurst on the on the on the bus, and we'll end up right there. One side's Huntington Beach, the other side's Newport Beach. But yeah, go out there into the water, and that water is cold. Yep. <laughs> Best time to go out in the water is actually in September. It's it's mm-hmm. it's odd, but that's when it was the warmest, and I'm I'm going to say it probably. May have got to 70 degrees. They had all summer to warm up at that point. <laughs> Unlike the Gulf Coast, I remember going to Gulf, Gulf Coast one time. It was 95 degrees, the water temperature was like, I didn't want to take a bath. Yeah. Now, interesting thing is Perry Farrell was the lead singer and also the lead writer on almost all the songs. And... The reason why 91 is sort of the, actually considered the farewell tour is because they had a dispute over the amount of money everybody earned. And Perry, since Imagine he's... Imagine that. Yeah. A dispute <laughs> in a rock band over money. So he said, well, since I'm writing all the songs, I'm going to get all the money for that. And he goes, well, and also I'm contributing onto the music, so I get one quarter of that. So he asked for 62.5%, and everybody else got 12.5%. And they went, up. Oh, screw that. We're not going to do anything. And finally, Warner Brothers says, hey, no, you're going to have to get together and do it. And it ended up, Perry ended up getting that. Wow. Yeah, so that just caused tensions right off the bat. And that's the reason sure. why 91's considered their farewell tour along with the Lollapalooza Festival tour. Which begs the question, hey, where's Perry? <laughs> <laughs> but unlike, you know, bands like Rush... Uh, we saw on, uh, on the 
movie Queen or uh, Behind Me and Rhapsody where they decided, hey, we're a band, we're all going to cut this equally. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you like to see. That's unusual maturity, though. And, and not just in a band, in any group. Agreed. Like the four of us. You know, we do, we do a good job of you know, dividing <laughs> right. the profits equally. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Share the wealth. It's, it's kind of hard to split 37 cents four ways <laughs> equally, though. Well, this song is called I Had a Dad. And uh, this hits me close to close to the bone here. So, and I want to get a little bit more involved into it. But one thing I do want to say is that this is one of the rare points where you have a guitar solo at the beginning of a of a song. Some good stuff right there, man. Yeah. Well, this is actually about one of the band members, uh, Eric Avery talking to uh, Perry Farrell about him finding out that he did not the person he thought it was his dad was not his dad he was actually kind of a stepfather and uh, just basically explaining how the stepfather really made him something that that, you know kind of molded him and then when he found he had a dad he didn't know what to do and there's a little line in here that says people think his God is dead but Perry Farrell said it was God is dad. But it's just so it's it's interesting on how that thing works. And the reason why it cuts the bone to me is because I also found out that I had a my the person I thought was my father was my stepfather. And we're talking about, you know, back in the seventies, you know, this this is kinda odd. You usually don't have that type of situation. Yeah. You really don't know. I I, I I've made phone calls to my biological dad, but I tell people, you know, this is someone I have no idea who he is. I just know he's somebody who lives out in California that that I make a phone call a couple times a year to and have never met. Well, think about this, too, to that point. Ever since the emergence of uh, the um, Ancestry.com Ancestry and 23andMe, there have been numerous stories about people going and doing their, their background and their, their their ancestry uh, checking and they find out that their dad is somebody else or you know that that, of course to your point it's not the person that they thought probably they're still their dad well he was that yeah you're right the person didn't have to necessarily be blood he's the one that was there for you and and helped you along the way like they said you can't pick your family but you can you, you can pick your friends Yes. Well, I settle for just picking my nose. I, I mean, I've been very happy with that. Picking and grinning, huh? But I can't pick my friend's nose. That's right. I heard any man can be a father, but it takes someone special to be a dad. I agree with oh, that. I like that. I agree with that. I like well, that. I can't say that about my dad. He was an alcoholic. and uh, Actually, this album was played when uh, I found out he actually beat my mom and uh, I was in Atlanta at the time and they were in Birmingham and this is one of those times when I got the angst and this is you can kind of feel this you could identify I was I was playing this album as I was heading over there to kick his ass and my brother met me over there and we both kind of restrained ourselves and basically told him don't ever do it again you do it again we're going to kick your ass and you're not going to you're not going to be able to tell you know be able to see the light of day for a long time and it was it was strange having to do that with with someone who you thought was 
you know, your father, yeah. you know, and, and of course, being an alcoholic, I mean, one time he was how I found out that I was quote quote a bastard child was that I he was taking um, diabetes medicine, but then also drinking whiskey at the same time. And he went totally evil. First time I saw somebody that basically had those evil eyes and kicked us out of the house, the whole family, and started throwing refrigerators and everything else. I mean, just picking them up. I mean, the guy's a strong dude, but I mean, this was like unheard of. of how, how he's here, here goes the dishwasher. Here goes. It, it was just crazy what he was doing, and it basically pointed at me and says, "You're a bastard child." And from then on, I kind of divorced myself of having a father at the time yeah. so it's it's difficult to kind of explain that to people but you have to know that everybody has a problem you just don't know right what it is until you get to know them. oh yeah well to your point though somebody knows what you're going through yeah exactly. plenty of people are unfortunate know what you're going through exactly well this song now is called mountain song ah this is more of our song yeah right right right. bruce you and i can relate we like the the lakes and the mountains well this is actually about an acid trip coming down off well we like that too. oh well i don't know know if i go that far that was the notorious part of jane's addiction almost every single one of them had some sort of heroin addiction well see when i go on my acid trip i think i'm in the mountains next to a lake I mean, honestly, it's a very, it's an angry album. I mean, there's lots of just yeah. like, well, they're pissed off because it's a songwriter's getting sixty percent of the profits. Yeah, no doubt, <laughs> that would so, do it. So basically, explaining this heroin, I'm not, I meant heroin, not acid, but uh, basically, when you come down off that high, and then you find somebody else is having it, and then there, there's a lot of uh, the jumping people, the line is jumping out of the flesh, and that's. That's what's happening is when you start figuring out, okay, this high is coming down. And sort of him and his girlfriend taking that high together and then having it come down separately at different. Well, they say, though, these the, the addicts that you, that you see in these documentaries and the news uh, programs and they talk to these people who have gone through the addiction and who have gone through rehab successfully, they say that once you get at heroin and meth, are the two most addictive drugs, and they're just the hardest because your body craves them so bad. I recognize this song. This this song got some airplay. I, I don't yeah. own any Jane's Addiction, but I, I know I've heard this one. Yeah, this is this considered the second single. And here's another guitar solo. Get the wah-wahs in there and... They've got that wall of sound kind of, you know, layered, layer after layer kind of uh, kind of sound to it. I've got a question. Where'd they come up with Jane's addiction? What's, who's Jane? Do you know? Jane was a friend of Perry Farrell's and uh, basically they considered her a, a roommate and considered her a friend, a muse, uh, but she obviously was involved in heroin, so that was her addiction. And that's that's where they got the name from. And, and sounds bad, but you know, obviously Perry Farrell knew some other people who had died from heroin overdoses. So they, pretty much as far as I know, they've all recovered and stopped doing crazy crap like that. But uh, it's are they still alive? Yeah, they're all still alive. Uh, uh, you know, so that's they, a good they've made right it there. through. Uh, you know, we we've talked about how musicians unfortunately they got a lot of time on their hands and then unfortunately they don't have too much time on their hands (laughs) taken away by the way 37 cents 62 percent of that is 22 cents (laughs) okay
We hope you're enjoying this episode of What the Riff from August of 1988. If you get a minute, please follow us on Facebook and certainly subscribe to our podcast at whattheriff.com. And also, please share us with your friends. We'd love to get some more subscribers. Now we return to What the Riff from August of 1988, and we're going to jump into our entertainment track. Enjoy What the Riff! This is not the Tanners, but it's its predecessor, and that is known as Roseanne. The Connors. The uh, Connors. What did I say? The Tanners. Uh, you know, I'm just terrible with names. But it is a sax. You got, can't go wrong with the sax. Well, in TV at this time, uh, Yo MTV Raps debuts. Yo MTV Raps. Uh-huh. Mm. And then the first primetime broadcast of a night game at Chicago's Wrigley Field. I remember that. Cubs and the Mets. I remember that. Movies that came out, The Blob. Wait, wait, back up it. You're saying in 1988 was the first broadcast night game at Wrigley Field. Oh, at Wrigley Field. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. You know, as you know, before then, they they swore there would never be lights or a night game at Wrigley Field. Well, guess what? Guess what took over? Big Bucks. That's right. So that was our entertainment track, and now we're going to get into our staff picks. This is mine. This is Brian's. Uh, it's from our friends from uh, Bruce Hornsby and the Range, and you probably recognize the intro here. It's from the album Scenes from the South Side, and it's the second album by Bruce Hornsby and the Range. Uh, the Valley Road was uh, Hornsby's third and last top ten U.S. hit, and. Uh, of course, this song is Look Out Any Window and listen to I love his piano. Oh, I love his piano work. I can feel my blood pressure dropping now since all the <laughs> Jane's addiction just going into your brain pounding. And now it's like, oh, okay. This is a lot happier. I'm glad we had Roseanne as the uh, bridge. <laughs> but of course, as we've talked about, I think, in other podcasts, Bruce Hornsby is one of those progressive um they did a lot of uh, work with environmental causes and and you know progressive causes but regardless to me Mm -hmm. just the the music music. and and, you know i'm i'm one that doesn't get hung up on political views especially as it concerns music because most of rock and roll music as we all know is progressive anti-establishment all that stuff so if you you know sit down and you listen to the the lyrics of the song, it is truly about you know some of the society wrongs as he saw it. So, irregardless, just, just listen to the harmonies here. So I, I was uh, at this time. I uh, I think I've mentioned before. I played piano and. Bruce Hornsby's piano work is is really good, really complex. I, I remember getting some songbooks that he wrote and just you know, kind of going through those things. And it's it's very difficult work. Yeah, this as we mentioned, you know, he it was very successful. That the way it is, of course, it, it was a preceding album uh, prior to this one, and uh, two other notable tracks uh, 
The Show Goes On, which was featured in Ron Howard's uh, 1991 film, Backdraft. Loved that song. And Jacob's Ladder, which we may not, most of us may be familiar with. It's not, it's not, he didn't sing it, but it was on an album by one of his friends, Huey Lewis. Oh, yeah. So Jacob's Ladder was the opening song on the four album. So, did Hornsby, was he, was he the piano player? I mean, was he playing the piano and singing? Yes. Horn, yeah. Hornsby wrote that, wrote uh, Jacob's Ladder. Yes. No, here on the song, yes. That's, that's Bruce Hornsby on the piano. Yeah. This is Hornsby. And uh, as you can tell, he, he can play that piano. But he did a lot of collaboration uh, with Don Henley on his solo album, right. The End of the Innocence. Right. He played piano on that song, the title track from that song, or from that album. That's right. But, of course, they, they were two kindred spirits in the progressive movement. Um, so he, he was very active at, uh, with Don Henley. And, and you think about it, they were uh, involved in uh, the... What, what's the, the, the pond, or there's some sort of Walden Pond? Walden? Yeah, exactly. They yeah. were very involved in that. Favorite Bruce Hornsby song? Do you have one? Bruce? It's it's probably, for me, the show goes on, but I've got to say the way it is is a good song, yeah. too. Yeah. With me, <laughs> it's a little mellow for me, so I don't really get into this type of music. There, okay. there We're is suffering here. Since you brought that up, there is one called Song C that is uh, it's an instrumental piece that is really good. It's, okay. it's one of his later pieces, but okay. uh, but I like that one too. Rob, what's your when you think about Bruce Hornsby in the range? Which one do you sticks out? This was one I I I didn't buy any of his, but I would hear it on the radio. I didn't buy a whole lot of music back then anyway, because it wasn't as easy. <laughs> you had to, and if I did buy something, it would be an album. Right, me too. So um, I, I can't help it. Uh, I think I may have mentioned this before, but just from the music quality of the song, Mandolin Rain. Mandolin Rain's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, well, unfortunately, this is kind of static of what was going on from 88 to, say, early 91 was that it was very popish. It, it was sort of the post, I guess, new wave feel that came out. And, and there was a lot of pop songs that were coming out. And some of the top hits of August 88 just kind of mentioned Steve Winwood, Roll With It, George Michael, Monkey, Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine was one, two, three. Elton John had I Don't Want to Go On With You Like That. And Chicago had I Don't Want to Live Without Your Love. So, you Those know, were softer. Yeah, yeah very yeah. much so. so kinda that, com it's kind of compares to Jane's Addiction, I think. Don't yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you. That, that was a good one, Brian. Thank. Appreciate that. Next, we have uh, a little bit more, uh, getting a little bit more into the rock and roll. I was looking at uh, a, a pick for um, August of 1988, and this is one that once I played it, I remembered it. It wasn't something that came uh, top of mind. Right. So, Rob, what is it? Starts off very quiet. Oh, and we're still mowing. Then it starts going. <laughs> this is bad company. No smoke without a fire. Oh yeah, okay. I remember. That. I saw them in concert for this uh, this tour, and uh, it was kind of odd not seeing Paul Rogers up there, but it was a good show. Uh, Steve Miller opened for him, and then Bad Company was the uh, main act. I went to a concert that had Bad Company as as the headliner, and Ted Nugent was the warm-up. 
Wow. Uh, and so, typical Wayne, I went for the <laughs> warm-up and left at the... <laughs> Well, I've I decided done that not. I, I just sort of went well, without Paul Rogers. It's not yeah. really bad company. It's it's hard to do that when your lead singer of all of those songs weren't wasn't there. So, well, bad bad company. You know, I'm I know most of their work from the '70s. They had uh, uh, bad company. Run Run this. with the Pack. Bad company. Well, bad company was in 1974. So when that came out, Straight Shooter was in 1975, and then Running with the Pack was 1976. I'll, I'll ask the question about Bad Company. What's your favorite Bad Company song? I like Bad. I like Bad Company. Bad Company. Okay. I like uh, what was it? Silver, silver, silver blue and gold. Yeah, silver mine. blue and gold. Absolutely. My favorite of all of Bad Company is that song. And it didn't get a lot of airplay. Though. That's what the no, ironic thing. Shooting Star. That's pretty good oh, yeah, too. Yeah. Great. Yeah, shooting Star is solid. Oh, Bruce, Rock and Roll Fantasy. I would say probably Shooting Star. Rock and Roll Fantasy was the the summer of '78. That was that was just the song that everybody listened to. I want to say. Yeah. Well, they were formed in 1973, and in London, and Paul Rogers and uh, Simon Kirk was the drummer, mm-hmm. and they were previously with the band Free. Yeah, all right now. And uh, yeah, I always thought oh, I thought that song was by Bad Company. <laughs> In a sense, it was. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I I don't know if you guys remember a band that he went to uh, was the Firm. He started the Firm. Do you oh, remember yeah. that yeah, with Jimmy Page? Yeah. yeah. And that was a good uh, little project. You know, they're working at a nuclear plant at that time. I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah, they became radioactive. Uh, it gets worse, uh, folks. And- <laughs> We need a rim shot in here. Now, also, I mean, it's interesting that when Queen toured this last tour, Paul Rogers was the lead singer on that on most of the songs. Yeah. Though they did pipe in Freddie Mercury on some of the on, on Bohemian Rhapsody mm-hmm. and things of that sort, and they played along with it. But yeah, it was. What do you guys think different. about that? Was that a was that a good move? I mean, was that like replacing David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar or? You know, well, it wasn't a permanent move, which is a good thing. But Paul Rogers, if you think about it, Freddie Mercury could hit three octaves. Not many people can do that. Yeah. Certainly not Paul Rogers. But Paul Rogers, Rolling Stone ranked him number fifty-five on uh, the one hundred greatest singers of all time. I won't disagree with that. His his voice truly is a staple, in my opinion. It's Paul Rogers. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I hear it, I know exactly who it is. Exactly. So is Freddie Mercury, right? Well, Freddie Mercury, I would say is 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 definitely in the top five. I would say he, he might be the number one singer. You would get my vote. He and Robert yeah. Plant, Robert Plant and Freddie Mercury to me were the yeah. top two singers. A lot of people will put Axl Rose up there too. Yeah. Well, some people thought that uh, Paul Rogers named the band after the film Bad Company, mm-hmm. but I I saw that uh, he did an interview and he said the idea came from a book of Victorian morals that showed a picture of an innocent kid looking up at an unsavory character leaning against the lamppost. The caption read, beware of bad company. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the, so the unsavory character shouldn't be hanging out with little kids. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, so We're when, I heard this, when I heard this, I thought, okay, well, this was um, uh, one that I wanted to do a little more research on. So I remembered it when I started playing it. So next up we have speaking of Jimmy Page. This is this is this is my pick. A little stereo action. There you go. 
So this is Jimmy Page. This is uh, this is called the Only One. And um, do you remember this song when it came out? Because it was a kind of a big deal. Recognize that voice? You can't help it. So this was a big deal because um, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant united for this. And on drums, that that's that's Jason Bonham. Oh. So oh, cool. John Bonham's son. So there was Please a tell l- me John Paul Jones was playing bass. I'm afraid it, not. I'm afraid not. So this was, I mean, this was a big deal to, to get them all together. So that's, that's kind of the thing. Um, Robert Plant doesn't sing on any other songs on this album. So... This oh, wow. song, this song is the only one. Is that why they call it the only one? I don't know. It's off of, um, it's off of Jimmy Page's album Outrider. This was uh, his first solo album, um, and and there hasn't he hasn't done another solo album. The uh, other solo, the other albums have been like you know, with in collaboration with somebody. So. Uh, as far as solo albums go, this is the only one. What's well, amazing, too, because you mentioned Jimmy Page <laughs> and Robert Plant, but that, this is in 1988. They'd really need their next collaboration until 1994. Yeah. Yeah, That's and that, right. I went to that concert with Page too. Plant, and that was, that was tremendous. Still today, to this day, one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah, I agree. No question. And they came back and te- teased us again in 1998. They'd welcome again if they came. Yeah. Oh, I'd buy a ticket. This You can... You can see though Jimmy Page's riff ability. You know oh, yeah. he's got he, he's got these hooks and these riffs that are just you know really really sticky. So did Jimmy Page sing on the who, who was singing on the other tracks on this album? That's that's a good question. I believe Jimmy Page sang on a few of them. I'd, I'd have to take a look. To be yeah. honest with you, I, I wasn't I, I I didn't look into the rest of the album. I should I should do that. It was supposed to be a two album release. Um, but early in the recording stages, somebody broke into Jimmy Page's house and stole a bunch of stuff. And one of the things that they stole were early demo tapes that he had recorded up no to that kidding. point. Yeah. Dang. So, uh, I wonder if those ever pop up somewhere. That's a good question. When I don't, they do, there's going to well, be some questions to answer. He said, he <laughs> said some, because you know, that wasn't the only thing that was stolen. Some of them did pop up on like bootleg type of things. But, uh, but I don't wow. think the early demo stuff appeared. Now, he's famous for having a heck of a record collection. I mean, old blues and things of that imagine. sort. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing a uh, documentary with him, Jack White, and uh, Edge from U2, and yeah. basically showing him, and he would just go through, and he's pulling out these records just real tenderly, putting them on a turntable, and go, here's this blues guy from, you know, 1929. And that's the stuff that he stole, uh, borrowed, right, when they wrote some early Zeppelin stuff. <laughs> The one that for he the was internet. inspired by. He sampled. <laughs> the one for the internet, a lot of those would probably not be known that they were borrowed either. Good point. So this song peaked at number 13 on Billboard's list of uh, mainstream rock songs in August. And I believe it was released in, in, in June. Now, albums of August 1988, he had Winger, Europe, Robert Cray, Glenn Fry, Danzig, Skaggs and Santana. But that wasn't Kip Winger's debut album, was it? Um, I don't believe so. I want to say they had come out before that. Of course, Beavis and Butt had made fun of Winger so much. It was. <laughs> uh, oh, 
winger fucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're awful. Give me some Jimmy Payne. <laughs> wow, a blast from the past. This awesome. was this was a blast from the past. Thanks, Bruce. My pleasure. This is no, cool. This is not Huey Lewis in the news. It sort of sounds like it. This is a reformed Little Feet. I remember this song very well. Most people remember Little Feet from the 70s with Lil George and on the, as the basically lead singer. This is the kind of reformed, and this is this was probably their most popular song that they came out because this was on I, I want to say almost every top voice. Yeah, you know, very popular. Bruce, would you like to dance? This <laughs> <laughs> is kind of good old southern rock, country, kind of boogie. It's a lot more lighthearted than uh, Jane's Addiction. Oh, uh, yeah. Look, I, I, see a, I see a big band. <laughs> Here I see big band and just uh, dancing, uh, you know, the old in the twenties and stuff. That yeah. People right. out there dancing this huge big band sound. Rat Pack type. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Everybody getting up there juking and jiving. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to juke this and is, jive and then you wail. <laughs> well, I mean, Jump and jive. This is <laughs> your typical kind of lyric, so it's not it's not deep at all. It's you know she's something like a smooth stretch of highway. She's like a cool summer breeze. If my motor's running right, we might lose control tonight. What's that referencing? Certainly he's talking about his automobile, right? Uh, I would guess. I think Bruce Springsteen did that song a little better. <laughs> Speaking of Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page thought uh, Little Feet was his favorite American band back in the 70s. Oh, yeah? No kidding. So you said you said this was a a, re, a remake. What'd you say? Reformed. reformed. They reformed. Uh, Lowell George was the main contributor of, of Little Feet back in the day. Okay. And uh, they were on that southern rock format. And he died in 1979, so pretty much kind of dissipated. And then they got the band back together, basically a la Blues Brothers. We're getting the band back together. So when were they, what were some other uh, Little Feet? Little Feet's one of those, I'm sure you're going to tell me a song that I'll know, but I didn't know it was them. Well, I, I'm actually going to save that for next time. We're, oh. we're, we'll, we're going we're gonna to focus on a, a Little Feet album. Uh, oh, okay. This is just happened to be one that was this, It was outside the time frame that I want to get into. But we've been hitting the 70s real hard, so I didn't pull them up. But I, you know, I do like Little Feet. I do like that Southern rock. We'll hold it. We'll hold it for next time. Just, just, just tease on it. Nothing. This. Put it this way. I don't remember a song with this tempo. No. Yeah, I think it was more mellow, more bluesy. Yeah. Bluesy, southern rock. Yeah. Type, you know. Yeah. But this is when they really get start, sort of kick into it. They did a few cover songs on on a following up album that was that was pretty fun too. So that we made spotlight. It, you know, actually, with the original band. This was very much in that Huey Lewis in the news mode. That there was a 
there, there was kind of a genre right there in the mid to late 80s where that was hitting. That's one I'm going to do, too, is Huey Lewis. Oh, yeah. Well, he's, he's got, got that Stray songs, Cats, so. you know, type Yeah, Stray deal. Cats. Rockabilly. Rockabilly. But uh, is this is this the uh, the Tower of Power uh, playing here? Or is this oh, just probably the, not. No. Okay. Cause yeah, it, to your more point, mm-hmm. Tower of Power played with the Huey Lewis band, and it sounds the same type of tempo, yeah. same te- type of sound. You got the horns, the Hammond organ. It's a fun song. Yeah, it is. That's great. Good staff pick. Thanks for bringing that, Wayne. Nice. Now we're going to go into uh, our entertainment track. We're really mellowing out now. <laughs> Let me tell you something. This guy was phenomenal. This is uh, Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry. Be happy. There's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be it's happy. like a digital <laughs> digital Jamaican beat here, you know, the, the, oh, the yeah. reggae in the background. It's not the steel drums or anything. <laughs> it is just a do do And this song holds a unique um, accomplishment. What's that? It is the first a cappella song to ever achieve Billboard Hot 100's top spot. Uh, is it really? There's music being played in the background. I can't be no, a cappella. <laughs> All a cappella. <laughs> and it held the, the number one position for two weeks. You know, I guess this was an answer to some of the darker sides of stuff coming out and what people were dealing with in 88 politically mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, hey, don't worry, be happy. Do you remember the video to this? Yeah. I sure do. You remember who was in it? You Robin, had Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Robin Williams was Williams in it. Ah. The Bobby Bobby McFerrin and Robin Williams and um, who was the third person? Another comedian. Yeah, Stop jumping out at me. Yeah, I remember a little bit about that now. Were they walking around giving people? Bill Irwin. Bill Bill Irwin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, they they were. It was just dancing around in front of the camera. It was really nothing, nothing elaborate, but mm-hmm. it was just an interesting collection of yep. folks. But he, I, I had his album, and um, there's some, there's some great. He had an album. I it, thought he just. Oh had no, a single. There is one. In fact, I, I've tried to figure out how I could work it in as my staff pick. It's not really a rock song. There's a song called Drive. That is just terrific. No kidding. Yeah, I may we I may squeeze it in on a, a, a future podcast, maybe as the uh, uh, the entertainment thing at the end. Yeah. But uh, it's yeah. it's a it's a much more jazz type of thing. It's not it's not kind of upbeat like this. Yeah, you got to do something to sell those Jamaican cassettes to those people who are vacationing down at the cruise ships. Uh, the cruise ships coming in here. Buy my buy my. Reggae album. Yeah, I really kind of thought of him being a one-hit wonder, and you know, no. mm-hmm. he but did a, a several years later, and I can't remember how many years, but he also, if you recall, did the the opening theme of the Cosby Show. Yeah, that's right. And that's true. So ah. he's he he did a lot of stuff other than just his song. But I, I guess I bet you're wondering where did the "Don't Worry, Be Happy" come from? I know that I can see I all over your I was just thinking, Brian. Yes. Where does "Don't Worry, Be Happy" come from? Well, it's funny you ask, Bruce, because. Uh, this is from the Indian mystic and sage 
Mayor Baba. B-A-B-A. He was... Uh, you mean Baba Raleigh? Uh, close. Uh, he lived from 1894 to 1969, and he often used the expression, don't worry, be happy, uh, when cabling his followers in the West. Uh, in the 60s, the expression was printed up on inspirational cards and posters of the era. And in 1988, McFerrin noticed a similar poster in the apartment of the jazz duo Tuck and Patty in San Francisco. Inspired by the expression's charm and simplicity, McFerrin wrote the now famous song, which was included in the soundtrack of the movie Cocktail. Yep. I, uh, became a hit single the next year. I've heard they updated this to Don't Worry, Be Happy, Get Off of Social Media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that what would, you have to I'm do. sure that would do it. I love the I love the line in here where it says, "Landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry, be happy." <laughs> That's a fun little one. Well, this has been a uh, multi personality what the riff from August of 1988. So thanks for joining us. Signing off. I'm Rob. I'm Brian. I'm Bruce. And I'm Wayne. See you next time. You've been listening to what the riff. We hope you enjoyed riffing with us, and we invite you to visit whattheriff.com to find and download the music we had on tap today. You can also contact us and request an album that you'd like us to riff about at whattheriff.com. And if you get a minute, like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Links are available on our website. Thanks for listening to What the Riff, brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. Also, Marbury Creative Group. Tell it better. If necessary, use words.